This is the Hyperallergic Podcast. I'm Harag Vartanian. Standing Rock is about more than the Dakota Access Pipeline, much more. And two artists are working to help Native American women heal. At the Osheti Sakawang Camp, adjacent to the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota, two Native American artists, Rebecca Nagel and Gracie Horn, have a mission. They know the pipeline, which threatens a Native way of life, is a major problem but they also want to address some of the other systematic violence that specifically impacts Native American women. For those newly joining us in this series, this is the third in our three-part series from Standing Rock. So let's get you up to speed. The multi-billion dollar Dakota Access Pipeline is being pushed by oil companies with the blessing of North Dakota politicians and the U.S. government. Thousands have gathered here for months on the banks of the Cannonball River to engage in prayer and nonviolent protest. They hope to stop the project. The pipeline was originally going to cross the Missouri River north of the state capital, Bismarck, but the city protested, fearing it'll impact their water system. The local Sioux don't know why they're being put in harm's way when the capital was spared this possible tragedy. It's hard not to see this as part of a bigger effort by the U.S. government to neglect and continue their history of violence towards Native Americans. I spoke to Rebecca and Gracie by their healing tent, which is collecting patches filled with stories and drawings by survivors of sexual violence. It's a project they fashioned after the well-known AIDS quilt, and they're calling it the Monument Quilt. The pair have also organized women-only and Native women-only healing circles for survivors. They talk to me about the prevalence of sexual violence, assault, and stalking by mostly white perpetrators against Native American women, particularly in North Dakota where so-called man camps house temporary oil workers. We're releasing this episode in this raw, lightly edited version because of a looming deadline of December 5th, when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers said they will be clearing the Osheti Sakawan camp, which is where the healing project is taking place. Though later we learned they were actually planning to ticket and arrest water protectors and their allies, though we're not quite sure what that means. This interview happened hours before that deadline was known. You can also hear the edited version of our podcast that was released a few days ago. But because of the historic nature of this event, we thought it was important to release this raw conversation and it allowed Native American artists and allies to share their thoughts in full. Hi, my name is Rebecca Nagel and I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Minneapolis, Minnesota, Edward T. Hello, my name is Gracie Horn. My bands are Assistant Wapton Dakota and um, Standing Rock Nation, Dakota, Lakota. And I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Great. Thank you. And can you tell me a little bit about your project that you've been doing here? Yeah, so we are hosting uh, quilt-making workshops with a project called The Monument Quilt, which is an ongoing collection of stories from survivors of rape and abuse. And we're bringing it to the camp to raise awareness about sexual assault and domestic violence in Indian country and show support for survivors. Yeah, and we've also included some time at the with our night sessions with elders to create a healing space uh, for specifically for Native women um, because we are so close to what's going on with the man camps in North Dakota and what potentially, if oil is does come through here, could help 
uh well not help it will affect our communities here and it already has it's um affected all as far as down into rapid city south dakota oglala nation to um crow creek south dakota to Siston, south dakota and minnesota and so this really is to and and also not to mention that we have ongoing historical trauma first from getting colonized um during the the um the indian wars and then going into the residential schools boarding school era of um you know after we were put into reservations and then now it's this ongoing um family um dysfunction from historical trauma so we are here to create that space for our native women to receive healings not just from clinical facilitators but also from our elder women who have um been on this earth longer than we have and so we are we aren't like the facilitators per se we just thought we want to create space to bring in those people to do the healing work and then tomorrow we're going to do a walk of support for survivors. So we're going to walk into the sacred fire and do an honoring ceremony so that in a very public way, um, survivors can be honored and know that their community supports them. And so how unique is it for Native women to be able to have these kind of spaces? In this situation, it's very what unique. Um, I'm from a city in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Rebecca's from Baltimore. There are, um, even just coming from my community, it's kind of, we have it there, but it's not very often. And oftentimes, like, this is very unique, whereas we have all of our tribes of Turtle Island that are coming together and we're healing together whereas if it was a healing support group in Minneapolis or Baltimore it would just be from that metro area so this is uh it's kind of a magical moment where we get to talk about these things because we know we we already say it we have programs and we have movements into healing but this is on a different level where it's like we're all finally in one place and that's that's a rarity and so we were just thinking like we need to really come in here and offer the those circles and really talk about history because what we have found with people that are surviving from that sort of trauma there's always this uh feeling to forget it to stuff it down and to like not really address it and when that happens kind of creates this amnesia of where this root comes from and so it's having people understand that this has been going on for generations and since we became colonized and it's really um setting up the links and also pointing out the parallels between um what's going on with our grandmother earth that she is you know it's a femicide with her um she is getting tapped into resources and as native people it's our responsibility to protect her and to um you know pray with her and we've almost neglected those responsibilities since being colonized and forced into reservation and into boarding school and you know dealing with our own our own traumas so I guess this is this is kind of like a awesome time to be here and to raise raise this awareness between 
um, the earth is sacred and women are sacred because we also give, uh, we have that ability to give life like the sun and like the earth. Great. And so do you see this, what kind of, do you see this as an artistic, because there's a visual, a visual element to this. Is this part of a bigger artistic practice for you? Is it part of a healing practice? How would you characterize it? Yeah, the monument quilt, you know, it's a lot like the AIDS quilt. It's a large public art project. So to date, we've collected um, about 1,700 quilt squares from survivors of rape and abuse from across the U.S. Um, and then we're also going to be, we have shawls that um, Native women made in support of a quilt walk for justice we did in D.C. last year. And so I think that one thing that is unique about the quilt is that a lot of the ways that we're given to heal are things like therapy or talking about it. But a lot of that trauma from rape and abuse lives in our bodies. So being able to do something physical and also something in community, um, which is really important. I think a lot of times the Western world has this very like individual approach to healing um, and as Native people, you know, our, the way that we heal is in groups and in community. And so being able to bring that here is really important. And so how have people been reacting to it? Because, I mean, I, I know abuse histories and I know surviving and all those yeah. types of things. And, I, and it's a hard nut to crack, as they say, you know, in terms of people being able to share those and also feeling like they're in a safe space to share those. And I'm kind of curious um, what some of those experiences have been like. It's been very interesting. I think when we first um, decided this and we were really talking on the phone, cause she's in Baltimore and I'm in Minneapolis, I was just very blunt with her. I said, I am not a facilitator. I, I'm not at that Yoda stage to conduct those types of circles. And so coincidentally, um, our facilitators came in today with their elders. So we had kind of our first round at facilitating our first kind of healing circle because we've both been to them. And in it, it is. It does get intense. Um, I think the first one I went to was in Minneapolis. And I, at that moment, I had never heard the stories of the from the older generation. My mother um, is a survivor, and she was very... Um, very very blunt about what happened to her so it, it could possibly prevent be prevented but as you know like what we're fighting today it's um eight, eight and ten women are survivors native women and so it's wow. like almost an impossible and we had we actually had one woman um that was not a victim and we were just like you're like a unicorn yeah. like wow. it, it's it's like that's beautiful because then she will pass. She's bro broken that chain, that that fam that family line. It has broken, and that's um, maybe one of the biggest things um, why I started doing this is because um, as of now we have no women in my family line that has not been uh, perpetrated. And so for me, it was like we need to heal each other and we need to start helping all these families. So it does. It 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 gets to that point of where. It, it does get hard to listen, but I think in my lifetime, I have always like been open, been opening to open to listening to my aunts, to my grandmother, to my mother. And so it's almost like being used to it 
you know, because you can go into any Indian home or a native home on the res and talking about it like people say yeah my my grand my grandfather was a victim yeah my grandmother was a victim from boarding school and so and then right now what we're being faced with with the missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada it's like even more talked about and um, this I mean this was happening at the United Nations level in Minneapolis we had the World Peace Forum there and we brought that forward as as native women to talk about it and so for me like I don't know what it is I think a person of color as a woman of color you're just so used to never having that like stability you know and you're so used to hearing those stories that it's almost like you know it's it when when there that's not a problem then that's when it's really surprising and so for me it's like i feel really honored to have young women and to have older women have a space to heal and it's not out of recognition at all uh, we're actually encouraging other women to create cir- uh, circles and healing circles cuz there has already been um healing circles here um, for all women and for Native women. So it the work has started here. And so we need all efforts to start talking about this and to also start building our, like, preventative, you know, set that, like, I feel like um, in mainstream culture, it's almost taboo to talk about it, you know. It's all really taboo to talk about it to yeah. your children. And I'm a mother of a five-year-old son, and I'm totally, totally paranoid um, of, like, where he goes Um, him spending the night at places and so for me it creates like this anxiety and I guess that's why I'm mostly here is to really talk about that because I learned best from my elders and see how they dealt with that because it is when you're a survivor I feel like that's where the emotional part comes like I can listen to them but for me it's like how do we take these strides to protect our children because that's where it comes from that's where the first contact is and so um, I think for me personally, that's where it would get, it does get a little bit hard, but for the greater sense, like, I'm just so, you know, it's, you're used to it and yeah, yeah it's not negative or, or anything. It's just that, you know, we, we don't really have a statistic where it's like, yeah, we have zero <laughs> rape and abuse on the res. It's like, that's not the, that's not what's going on. What are the statistics for native uh, women and, and sexual violence? Yeah. So, um, Eight in ten of us will be raped, abused, or stalked in our lifetime. And one in three Native women will be raped, abused, or stalked actually every year. Wow. And um, the majority of those perpetrators are non-Native. So of those perpetrators, 96% are non-Native. So unlike rape and abuse um, for other ethnic groups in the U.S., you know, we Native women are two and a half times more likely than any other ethnic group to be raped, and the majority of our perpetrators are non-Native. And one of the laws that really contributes to that is um, tribal jurisdiction. So if I um, was on my tribe's land back in Oklahoma and somebody who is non-Native sexually assaulted me, my tribe is prohibited from prosecuting that person. And so, and that's for all crimes. So tribes can't prosecute people for murder, for rape, for theft, for child abuse, even for speeding. So like if you wanted to take your car and just speed through the Standing Rock Reservation, the tribal police wouldn't be able to do anything. 
Um, and so what happens with sexual assault in Indian country is that it goes to the federal government, but then the federal government declines to prosecute the majority of the cases that they get. So there's basically this jurisdictional loophole where there's little to no justice. Um, and people know that. People know that. And they come to frontline communities, you know, and then the oil industry makes it worse. So already North Dakota produces more oil than any other state in the U.S., um, the majority of that oil extraction happens on tribal lands. And so you see in areas where there's been, since the oil boom in 2010, like the three affiliated tribes in the northern part of the state, advocates report, you know, a doubling and a tripling in calls for service. So the oil industry brings in these man camps that house thousands of men who work for periods of time um, and it has really increased sexual assault and abuse and also sex trafficking. So even there was an advocate I was talking to who works for um, the statewide coalition here, um, the Native Native Women's Society of the Great Plains, and she was telling me that she at a gas station overheard this oil worker trying to flirt with some young women Um, And one of the things, and he was kind of having an inappropriate conversation with them, and one of the things he was saying was he was asking, are you enrolled here? Because he knows, like, the legal loopholes. Wow. So so this is, I mean, this is premeditated. I mean, this isn't any, I I mean, these are people who are actually seeking out victims. Yeah, Yeah, people, people go, people, I mean, I think that just in general, people, perpetrators, you know, people aren't going to commit crimes that they think that they're going to get caught and punished for. People are going to commit crimes that they think that they're going to get away with. And in Indian country, the overwhelming majority of perpetrators get away with it. Wow. It's a lot of information. I'm sure most people are going to be really shocked to hear this this information, probably sometimes for the first time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And, and it, one of the, I mean, one thing, there has been a bright spot of progress in the past few years. So in VAWA 2013, um, Native advocates fought really hard for tribal jurisdiction. So we, our tribes did get jurisdiction, but it's a sliver of what we need. So tribes can prosecute domestic violence, dating, and stalking violence. Um, but that's it. So all those other crimes that we talked about, um, and even pe- someone who might, you know, have been abusive towards a spouse and the children, the tribe can prosecute for the abuse towards a spouse, but not the children. Just Unbelievable. Ridiculous. So I guess I also wanted to get a little big picture in terms of Standing Rock because everyone I've talked to has talked about how really unique this is. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get your perspectives on that. And particularly in light of a project like this, you know, where you are sort of exploring some of these systemic problems yeah. in, in culture. Um, so what is what are some of your thoughts about Standing Rock and what's going on here? Well, I just got back from California. Um, I was with the Standing Rock youth that ran from from Standing Rock to D.C. And um, they were on a speaking tour. And for us, we, instead of saying this is about Standing Rock, it's not about Standing Rock. It's about unifying that voice of what's going on in our backyards and it was interesting it was the first time that i had um gone with the youth to do their speaking tour and it was really their first time to get off of the res and do that they were running and doing that but this was like specifically before speaking 
And while we were there, we were asking um, the local tribes for their support and really asking for that permission to go onto their territories. But also they were sharing what was going on in their backyards. And I, we have this um, impression that California has, you know, beautiful beaches and all this land and the redwoods and all this stuff. But in going there, I realized that you go to the beach and you just get used to an oil rig being out in the ocean. You don't realize that there's fracking all the way down um, California and that I didn't know that Greenpeace comes from Santa Barbara, California. That's where it was birthed out of. and um, But like it's not where it definitely started this notion with fighting for the earth because Native people have always done that. So the Chumash people from, from California, um, from that Santa Barbara area, had been doing that but as an organization Greenpeace sprang from there and it was from a leak and they still have a leak there it, it doesn't end and so now um, now we're trying to spread this message that to really deal with what's going on in, in your home territories come here but take a, a piece of our fire and bring it back to your home fires and fight the fight there because um, I I'm from Minnesota. I am half Standing Rock, but my other nation is Sistan Wapton. That's about um, four hours east from here, and we are sitting on an aquifer, and we're having to fight um, for clean water because we have, you know, Minnesota, South Dakota has the Caffle Farms, and so it's contaminating our water sources. And also, we are finding companies that want to drill into our aquifer because when they put us there, they relocated us from Minnesota to South Dakota. Um, they took us from our home territories and put us on land that they thought was desolate and barren, but in, in fact, they put us on an aquifer. So they want this aquifer now, and so we're having to fight it, but it's not saying that every Native person or every system Watson person is on like the same level of feeling that we should protect it. So what we do is we try to uh, send our people here we try to educate them of, of what's going on to know that this is your fight because your children are going to be inheriting the same responsibility this isn't about one person leading the charge it's about educating us all to have this continual cycle of uh, pushing back those threats because right now honestly we could say as a nation no we don't want to sell our water no we don't want you to drill here no we we don't want cattle farms anymore because you're contaminating our water sources who's to say that in the future that it could be different where we have uh, we have um you know generations that don't agree with that so for us it's like making sure that we're all in the same consciousness and making sure that this is the fight but what we're trying to do is also tie in that we need to start healing because it's in in our way i can only speak to the light of dakota lakota nakota people but we've always felt like in order for you to be a protector of the earth that you need to be mentally strong physically strong and spiritually strong and a lot of people that haven't dealt with their traumas face a lot of exisms like um being addicted to alcohol being addicted to casino being addicted to even watching tv or overeating or all this stuff and so we feel like in order to for our grandmother earth to get the right protectors that these people need to be outfitted 
mentally physically and spiritually to be strong to handle that and so this is this is why we did this circle so i just feel like right now um standing this it is about standing rock but then it's not about standing rock it's really encouraging people to look at what's going on at their home and how about you rebecca I think uh, for me coming here, what's really powerful is our nations coming together. So, um, you know, I'm a visitor here also as a Cherokee woman, and but to see tribal nations um, from all over the U.S. take a stand together is really powerful, and it's something that um, hasn't happened in generations. And so that's a historic thing for Indian country and as Native people. Um, and then, you know, in Oklahoma, we, I was actually back in Oklahoma in September and I, um, was in a 5.6 earthquake in Oklahoma. And so there's a lot of fracking going on in Oklahoma. Oklahoma used to not have earthquakes and now it's having 300 earthquakes a year and some of them like five to six point earthquakes. And so that's something that we have to start working on back there because the fracking is so out of control that it's changing the yeah it's I mean it's changing the whole we're changing the earth in this <laughs> really dramatic way um and I think too I think what's important about Standing Rock and that I hope I think that a lot of times the way that anti-indigenous racism works is through erasure and so it's not that um you know native people haven't come together in a big way since the 70s we've been organizing this whole time it's just it hasn't gotten a lot of attention outside of the native world and so i think that standing rock is a powerful moment in that we broke through that silence and we broke through that erasure and now um the world is watching and so um that's a really powerful moment for us as Native people to be able to come together and also for there to be the spotlight because, you know, this isn't the only community, you know, I live in Baltimore now and there are two pipelines on the East Coast um, that are also going through Native land. So it's not the only community that is having this struggle. And what do you think the role of art in something like this is? Definitely therapy. It's always... Um, so my background is museum studies. I curate, I do independent curation. And I, but prior to this, I was curating um, native or indigenous art shows where um, the artwork from the Keystone Pipeline fight and throughout the, throughout, you know, time with the campaigns for clean water and clean air. And so it's been um, an almost natural transition to go towards um, raising this awareness of um, abuse, assault, um, her sexual harassment and rape. So it's it was kind of a smoother transition, but it's kind of changing a little bit of the gears. But from what my experience was in working with the Native community and Native art and the Native art um, genre, it's been in my experience that there is many closet Native artists. Like we, it's been a part of our culture. Um, in our way, we like uh, during winter, we would start making our things and doing our winter count on hides. Everything was painted and it told a story. And so it was like in everyday life, art was definitely a part of our life. Like you wouldn't see, like we're wearing a sweatshirt and jeans and shoes right now. Back then our people like, 
quilled with their teeth and like put it into their jacket and to their pants into baby moccasins into blankets even into um parfleche bags for the stuff that they would put their stuff on so it's very much a part of our culture and we've just we've never really had um i guess the opportunity to continue it because it is art is expensive i you know as a young person um as, and as a as an artist i wasn't my mother was an artist but it wasn't like she had the financial ability to just go and get me an art set you know i didn't really get to start working with my the mediums i do now until high school mm. where it was you know school supplies that like funded that and so that's where it's kind of hard because it does cost money but when you your money is going towards everyday eating and paying bills like art is always pushed in the back table just like with our school curriculums it's always pushed in the back table but when it's available and it's for free then people show up natives show up because we have that connection it's in it's in our culture it's in our dna and so bringing it here it's only natural that this would be like the exact thing that would be needed to work through those emotions and to raise that awareness and consciousness how about you um yeah i think with art i one i think that for healing and for therapy i think that art and making things accesses a different part of the brain so i think there are a lot of places within a person where trauma lives and so i think traditional therapy is one mode of raising trauma but i find that art um, can access places that traditional talk therapy can't access um, and I also think that it's powerful you know specifically like for me myself as a survivor um, to be able to make something out of that experience and even if it is just like a quilt square or something that's physical but to be able to create um, from a place of loss I think helps me regain what I lost through surviving abuse um, and then I also think that part of the illness and the sickness um you know that we live in this rape culture i think art is a powerful tool not only for changing that but also helping us imagine an alternative so with the monument quilt we um We've collected 1,700 stories from survivors and we lay the quilt out in these public spaces and we basically create a temporary monument to survivors and we create this is what public space would look like and feel like if we lived in a culture that honored survivors and that supported survivors and believed survivors and said, you are not alone. And so we, through art, can create those alternative spaces and that alternative reality. And, and I think we can't, we can't build the world that we want to live in if we can't imagine it. Mm -hmm. And I think that art can be a powerful part of that imagining. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? We, I think that our end-all, be-all message is to continue the healing it's not we don't find it like you're throwing shade at us if you can go do it too because for us it's like every effort and bringing a healing circle and bringing and using art is great and people should continue to do that not just here but bring it home and and talk about what's going on with um grandmother earth and what's going on in your communities and how you can um stop stop it you know because we need we need to like our our children when we have when, well when i have a daughter because i have a son but it needs to it really needs to end now 
and um so i guess that would be my end all message and i think um i think my overall message would be you know for survivors you are not alone we believe you it's not your fault um you did not deserve what happened to you um and i think especially uh for native women for us to be able to have the space to come together and to support each other um, in this historic moment is um, really special. So I'm really honored to be here and to be part of that. Thank you to both of you for sh- sharing the story and for talking about your project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you. Soon after I finished my interviews on Friday, November 25th, the Standing Rock Tribe announced that the Army Corps was planning to close public access to Osheti Sakawang Camp. This weekend, over a thousand Native American veterans are expected to converge at Standing Rock. The world will be watching as authorities say they will be ticketing and arresting the water protectors and their allies, and potentially the veterans, in order to move them all on the other side of the Cannonball River in an Orwellian-sounding free speech zone. The truth is, no one knows what's coming next. Visit hyperallergic.com for updates and the latest news about the story. I'm Rog Vartanian, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Our executive producer and editor is Giseli Rigatau. Our publisher is Viken Gaikian, And Garen Gaikian is the maestro behind our theme music. Thanks for listening. Hey,